Adams, Adamly, Adamowski, Bueller, Burns, Burns, Burns. with that mic in your hand. It's time for school. Rock school. With your hosts, Dr. Joe Burns. You are really high on the song Desolation Road to the point where I put the book down, put it up on YouTube, and read the lyrics. Because I knew the song. But it was always sort of one of the tunes before the bookend hits. Class is in. This is the Rock School Radio Show here on the Rock School Radio Network. My name is Joe Burns, and I'm sorry Tammy's not here. And you, if you're a faithful listener, you probably know why we have an interview today. The interview is with author Jim Curtis about his new book, Decoding Dylan. And that's what the book does. It decodes Dylan. It's a fantastically researched book into the life and music of America's voice of a generation. Jim goes deep into Dylan's association with fine art, literature, and good old-fashioned rock and roll. Plus, he's a heck of a lot of fun to talk to. So, for an hour today, Jim Curtis on his new book, Decoding Dylan. On Rock School. On the phone with me, Jim Curtis, the author of the book Decoding Dylan. Jim, thanks for speaking with us. Happy to be here, Joe. Certainly. Let me ask you a question first off. Uh, I was part of a book that was by or about Don McLean and American Pie and the amount of legal clearance we had to do was insane. Now, this is Bob mm-hmm. Dylan, and I think he. He has an army of lawyers. How were you able to write a book about Dylan? The short answer is very carefully. Yes. Several people have said, and I think this is right, that it would have been a better book if I had quoted more song lyrics, but it would also have been a more expensive and more complicated book. So what I did was to think very carefully about how I could include just a couple of words here and there that would suggest the song, most of which people sort of know anyhow. Yeah. And that's what I did. And thank God I have not heard from Bill's lawyers, so I guess I'm okay. I'm I'm shook about that. Hopefully this interview doesn't get you, you know, hit by Bob Dylan and his lawyers. Let me ask you a question. Every time I talk to somebody about a specific group and they praise that group or that artist, Beatles is the big one. Let me just tell you or ask you this question that I ask of all those people. Why Bob Dylan? Of all people, there were other folk artists out then. There was Joni Mitchell. There was a little bit of CSNY. There was also Don McLean, I mentioned before. Why Why Bob Dylan? Why has he risen so high? Why? Well, let me do that in two parts. First of all, why Bob Dylan? For me, I wrote the book because I believed then and still believe now that there's a great deal about Dylan that the people fundamentally do not understand. And I wanted to bring the part that Dylan people didn't appreciate to the fore. 
Mm-hmm. But the second part has an answer, and I'm really serious about this. What you're asking speaks to what I think is the like the ultimate mystery of the universe. One of the things that interestingly fascinates me is why are there supremely talented people? Why is there Michelangelo? Why is there Picasso? Why is there whoever? And it's just one of the great mysteries and it endlessly, endlessly intrigues me. There is nothing, and I mean nothing, in Dylan's background that would suggest that he would become the artist that he was. Also through Bruce Springsteen, also through Barbara Streisand, and a whole bunch of other people. I'm endlessly intrigued by this, this mystery of talent coming out of unlikely places. You mention a song, and it's your lyrics, Songs for Passersby. Is yep. that out there anywhere? Did you record it? Can I get it? No, I haven't. I haven't recorded. If you'd like to record it, I would be delighted. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I will. Maybe I will. Don't think about it. Do it as soon as you want it. Seriously. Oh, oh, uh, you know what? I may just take an afternoon and, and create a demo and send it to you. Yeah, that would be wonderful. I would be so flattered. I'd be flattered out of my mind well, if you were to do that. Maybe I do it in the style of Dylan. Uh, just from a musician's standpoint, Bob mm-hmm. Dylan is not difficult music. It's yeah. it's mm-hmm. it really Simple is. Chords, right? It is. It's the simplest of chords. And there's there's other bands that are like that. REM. It's the simplest of music, and I wonder. Is that on purpose, or is he at the limit of his musicianship? Because if you make a song that is slightly more than a child's song, people can grasp the melody and grasp where it's going. They can hear where it's going before it goes to the next chord. Was Dylan a better musician than this, or was he on purpose playing four chords tops? (laughs) I think he's playing four chords tops. I really do. I think that's all that he cared about. For him, it's the synthesis of the words and the music, and if the music was adequate, that's fine. You know, he was never going to be Jimi Hendrix. No. (laughs) No, but a a minor chord now and again might have made people go, ooh, listen to that. (laughs) In 2016, Dylan wins the Nobel Prize for Literature. I agree with it, don't get me wrong, but I had a lot of my friends, a lot of my I'm better than you friends, (laughs) roll their eyes so hard they could see their own back. Is <laughs> yeah. is music literature? And was that thing warranted, that Nobel Prize, was it warranted? Yes, I think it was. My my fallback comparison is with John Steinbeck. John Steinbeck was a pretty good novelist, not a great novelist, but he won a Nobel Prize. For, by anybody's imagination, by anybody's estimation, Dylan is way more important for American culture than John Steinbeck ever will be. Well, they both had, quote, hits. You know what I mean? They both had, quote, hits. Would he have won it without having had, you know, hits, Lay, Lady, Lay, that kind of stuff? I think so, yeah. Hmm. I do. Lay, lady, lay Lay across my big brass bed Lay, lady, lay 
lay across my big breast bed. Whatever colors you stay, lady, stay. Stay while the night is still ahead. Let's get into something meaty that I'll make you a bet a lot of casual observers can find. You did state that Hank Williams had some effect on Dylan, the perfect American song. But even the most casual observer can see Woody Guthrie was the, I don't know how to say it, the launching pad for Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan's Woody Guthrie, except he does it better. Am I right or wrong? Uh, Well... So you seem like a nice guy. I don't want to say you're wrong, but <laughs> no, I would disagree. And here's, here's why. <laughs> this also has to do with creativity. If you ask yourself, what patterns do we find in the lives of creative people? Not just rock stars, actors, writers, whoever. One of the things, and there's a lot of good literature on this, people have studied is that there's a problem with the father. There's what psychologists call the impaired relationship with the father, mm-hmm. which Dylan certainly had. Dylan has this wonderful line. He said, my father and I didn't live in the same town. Yeah. Yeah, so I've, I've heard that. that. I disliked it. We didn't live in the same town. We didn't understand each other. We had nothing in common. Okay. What happens to a gifted boy whose father doesn't care about him or understand him? Well, the answer is that gift is going to develop, and it's going to develop in a way that will reach out into the world and look for father figures in the absence of a biological father figure. Mm -hmm. So what I am saying is that when in Dinkytown in something like 1959, Dylan heard Woody Guthrie for the first time, he's like a bombshell. I'm sure. Right? I'm sure. Why was it? That's, this is Dylan. Dylan is complicated, and by no means can you say it was just because Woody Guthrie was a great singer-songwriter. It was also because Dylan needed a father figure who would give him guidance in his life, which his father didn't do. Mm-hmm. Moreover, there's another sub part of this subtext is that very conveniently, Woody Guthrie was not a Jew. He was looking for, he didn't know it, but he was looking for a Christian father figure who would give him some kind of guidance that he can model himself on. Well, guess what? He goes to New York. He finally goes to see Woody Guthrie on his deathbed in New Jersey, right? Mm -hmm. Then he comes back, and what happens to him? He discovers New York. Specifically, he discovers the art scene in New York. Right. And... There was no turning back from no turning back to Hibbing, no turning back to Woody Guthrie, because he acquired the much greater sophistication, awareness of painting and music and so forth that none of this would ever give him. He says in this film about him that Martin Scorsese directed and commented on, he said, I went through Guthrie. And that's Dylan's laconic way of saying, I was intrigued with Woody Guthrie, but he was only a brief phase in my life. 
Oh, see, I had so much more influence in Woody Guthrie. I, I looked at it because early in his career, he wore the same hats. I can see some mm-hmm. pictures that are exactly the same. I just kind of thought mm-hmm. he went, I'm Woody Guthrie, and then took off from there. You yep. you mentioned Guthrie. In his early phase in New York, yeah. he modeled himself on a series of people. He modeled himself on Woody Guthrie. He modeled himself on a singer, a uh, folk singer, a little known now, named Ramblin' Jack Elliott. Mm-hmm. He, he told people he was an orphan. <laughs> really? I mean, he went, he went, you know, one of the most cruel things he ever did. He gave a concert and found all his parents were in the auditorium and he stood up in front of 3,000 people and said, I'm an orphan. Gosh. Thanks for coming, yeah. Mom. Yeah. Oh. He was looking for who he was because he didn't know. Shipping gave him no clue. His father gave him no clue. He had to yeah. find out who he was. That's one of the most important things you can understand about the early Dylan. And my argument is that he found finally, after all this searching and screwing around and telling lies about himself, he finally found his father figure who was his guiding light for his whole life, and that man was Pablo Picasso. Pablo Picasso, the surrealist yeah. painter. Well, not okay. just no, he was a surrealist. He was Picasso goes beyond classification, really. He never painted anything abstract for me. He painted damn near everything else. Okay. So, okay, okay. you're going to have to make that I, connection. I this in the book. Yeah. Do you remember this quote? There's one and only one artist in the entire world of whom Dylan has ever said, I wanted to be like him. And it sure wasn't Woody Guthrie. It was Pablo Picasso. Well, I would have never picked Picasso because when you say artist... I would yeah. have immediately gone to another musician. But see, you well, threw okay. you threw Elliot and Kafka in there as well. So you've got a yep. bug in the wasteland. You, you uh-huh. yeah, yep. bring all this full circle cuz this I'm I'm wondering was is this laid across Dylan or was he doing all of this? He was doing all this. Dylan has a brilliant imagination, has a tremendous thirst for sophistication. One of the re- uh, another way of saying, answering the question, why did you write the book? Is that I realize that Dylan has a background that most rock and roll fans don't have and don't want to have. Mm-hmm. But just let me lay some things out for you. Okay. Dylan has studied Picasso's work very well and knows it very well. He has read and studied T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. He has read and studied Dante's Inferno. He brings all that to his work. And if rock and roll fans don't know about any of that, well, they miss a lot of stuff. Dylan makes no distinction. It's one of the most important things anybody can understand about it. Dylan makes no distinction between high culture and popular culture, between... Come gather round people wherever you roam And admit that the waters around you have grown And accept it that soon you'll be drowned How will later be last for the times they are a-changing Who took Dylan? To all these museums and introduced him to art. It wasn't his father. Oh. You said he had no connection. You should ask. 
Yeah. Is is this is a somebody that I have a very strong feeling about. I never met her unfortunately, but she is the most underappreciated person in Dylan Lure. Her name was Susan Vitullo. And we've all seen her because she's the girl who is with Dylan on the copper cover of the free wheel and pop Dylan. Yeah. You visualize that cover? Sure. It's Dylan and a girl walking down the street in Greenwich Village. That's Susie Rotolo. Well, as her name indicates, she was Italian. She was an art student. She loved art. She loved Picasso. And she met Dylan. And you got to remember, Dylan in 1962 was a hick. He really was. A beautifully gifted hick, but a hick. Yeah. He was from Hibbing, for God's sake, which is a cultural desert. He didn't know anything about anything. <laughs> and Susie, but she perceived him as a talent. And then he was tremendously, he was beautiful, the only word for it. There's a book called The Early Dylan. Have you seen that? I have not. Lots of pictures of Dylan at 63, 64. He was just a beautiful boy. And she fell in love with him for understandable reasons. Yeah. So she thought, I, I want to share art with this prodigiously gifted kid from nowhere. And so she takes him to the Museum of Modern Art. That's where he saw Picasso for the first time. We need to take our first break, but we'll be back in a minute to continue talking with Jim Curtis about his new book, Decoding Dylan, on Rock School. something you've made the statement multiple times that dylan didn't care about high culture low culture depending on your bourgeois attitude or not but you then linked him with hound dog and i've heard these kind of connections before that ozzy osbourne got started because of the beatles she loves you but if you listen to ozzy's stuff it's nowhere near she loves you but he said it was the greatest influence on him ever Go ahead and connect the, and I'm, I think you're talking about El, Elvis's version of Hound Dog, not Big Mama Thornton. So, yeah, yeah, sure. So connect up like a Rolling Stone and Hound Dog. Put those together. Okay. <clears throat> you ain't never caught a rabbit and you ain't no friend of mine. Right. Right? Yes. They said you was high class, but that was just a lie. Yes. You went to those schools all right, but you got juice in it. So that's just just approving a couple of samples from the lyrics. Sure. So here's the way it works, and this also has to do with creativity. There's a critic that you may or may not have heard of called Cheryl Bloom. I don't know. Okay. He wrote a book called The Anxiety of Influence. Mm-hmm. He had an endowed chair at Harvard, at Yale. He wrote 40 books. He was a very big kid. And what he says is this, that artists are not isolated. They look upon the great people in their field who came before them, not necessarily as models, but as rivals. So it's really important, and I read this recently, that, that, that Dylan actually went to my hometown of Tupelo, where Elvis was from. And he did that in order to soak up the essence of Elvis. Mm-hmm. What then does that mean? What it means is 
that if Elvis is the king of rock and roll, then who the hell was Bob Dylan? Dylan had to define himself against Elvis. And my argument is it's a little convoluted and I'm, it's hard to discuss it in conversation, but my argument is that like a Rolling Stone is Dylan's reply to Hound Dog and has enough connections. It's, they're both addressed to women. They're both addressed to women who were disappointing in some way. Yeah. But the point is, no, of course it doesn't sound like Hound Dog, and that's the point, that Dylan is both connecting himself to Elvis and saying, look, I'm, I'm a man, I can do as good as you can, and also defining his difference from Elvis. He was uh, an Elvis person, though. I understand when he went to Memphis and toured Sun Studios, Dylan yep. got down on his knees and kissed the floor where I Hound Dog... Yeah. I, can, I can believe it, sure. Oh, yeah. But on the sun- doesn't exclude rivalry. But he never I'm met never Elvis. Right. He specifically said, "I don't want to meet Elvis." Why would he do sure. that? Why? Yeah, because because he knew that meeting Elvis would just be overwhelming. Dylan is a very proud man, and he knew that meeting Elvis would be overwhelming, and he didn't want to do it. Well, he if he had met them, I'm get him. I'll make you bet he done a much better job than the Beatles because the Beatles made fun of him, which was yeah, not sure. a good idea. Because, because the Beatles were also overawed and they were out of place and they fed off each other and frankly they were often not very nice to be around. Basically. Yeah. But let me continue this. Sure. From Hound Dog to Like a Rolling Stone to guess what? Born to Run. There's a clear progression right. there, right? Yeah. Oh, I can I can hear like, Dylan like very much. Song, yes. Yeah, like a Rolling Stone is reply to Hound Dog. Born to Run is reply to like a Rolling Stone. Hmm. Once upon a time, you dressed so fine, dude. Like a Rolling Stone. Let me, let me hit something else specific. You are really high on the song Desolation Road to the point where I put the book down, put it up on YouTube, and read the lyrics. Because I knew the song. But it was always sort of one of the tunes before the bookend hits. So I, I literally went and read it. It's dark, man. It's dark. Why are you so high on Desolation Road? Well, as I say in the book, it's the middle song of what I call the Transcendence Trilogy. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, Desolation Run, Visions of Vanna. They are a trilogy. They all fit together, and it helps to appreciate them fit together. It's the only, one of the only songs in which Dylan is with a girl. He's with a lady. Mm-hmm. And... It's the only one in which it creates a place. Yeah, oh, Desolation yeah, Boulevard, the sure. Of course, is a Steinbeck's Cannery Row. Mm-hmm. And so Desolation Row, to simplify it, is Dylan's vision of America in the 60s as, as a place where there are suicide machines. Love that phrase. 
can can you and, point each one of the people out? He talks about the mayor who has his hands in his pants. Is there, are they all specific people? If you break it down, are they all no, references? Mm, no, no, no. There, there, there's no references. Yeah, I mean, there's Einstein is named in the book. Right. Casanova is named in the song. But aside from them, none of the other characters have any reference to anyone. They're generalized because. And also, remember, I said that Dylan has read Dante's Inferno. Sure. Most rock and roll fans have not. <laughs> but Dylan has read it. Dylan has studied it, and it is Desolation Row is derived from I swear to God, Dante's Inferno, mm-hmm. in which all the people are placed according to their sensibility. One of the is it seven? Exactly. Yeah, one of the seven. Sinners are placed in Dante's Inferno. Is that why it's so long? He has to move through yep. all sections because it, so, yeah. it does go on. It does go on. It does, yeah. You make a huge point. In fact, you have a chart that goes, I think, three pages in the book about Dylan's yep. rhyme scheme. A-A-B-B-A-A-A-C-A-C-A-B-A-B, that kind of thing. Yep. I, okay, I, I looked at it and I kind of went, look, that's just the nuts and bolts of a song. We talked earlier in the interview, Dylan only knows six chords. Yeah, what okay. does the rhyme scheme have to do with anything? <clears throat> It creates, well, first of all, nobody ever done it before, except for Tin Panali. Cole Porter did it. I like to point out similarities between Dylan and everybody else that people aren't associated with. Mm-hmm. Go back before rock and roll and you get to Tin Panali. Cole Porter, for example, used triple rhymes like very much as Dylan did. But when Dylan was reacting against the love songs of the 50s, which were virtually always written in couplets, Johnny Be Good is written in couplets, right? Yes. Oh, definitely. Okay. Now, all of the stuff from the 50s that Dylan grew up with was written in couplets. So Dylan, wanting to define himself against the past and against Elvis, says, hmm, all right, you guys can write in couplets, but I'm going to show you because I can write in triple lines and I'll create these fiendishly difficult stanza forms and follow them through consistently. Nobody had ever done that before. It, it makes for almost a free, in, in a lot of songs of his, it makes for almost a free verse. Just think about uh, some of the some of the lines and some of the singing in like a Rolling Stone. It sounds like some of the words are being shoved in sideways, but yet mm-hmm. it works. It's like falling down yeah, the stairs. And, yeah. Because, because the rhyme scheme holds the song together. That's my argument. Yeah, I see. I would and have never thought to do that. that that he uses these triple rhymes that nobody had ever heard before that make it coherent. That's why I think he can do it. And the rhymes vary considerably in length. They're not like Shakespearean sonnets, you know? Yeah. They rhyme, they vary considerably in length, but he can do that because it's the rhyme scheme overall that holds it together. Selling postcards of the hanging They're painting the passports brown The beauty parlor is filled with sailors The circus is in town Here comes the...
yeah, you can't you 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 can't expect an audience to stay the same and consume the same stuff. So, yeah. what's that old question? Let's say the Beatles came out today, would yeah. they have hits? Yeah, probably. Would they said, be? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, would they be the Beatles? Oh, I doubt it. No, yeah. they were unique to that time and place. Yeah, what I, I read somewhere, what was Mozart's greatest greatest idea? And it was being born when he was born, because that's, <laughs> right. that's when it happened. That's a, good way, that's a good way to put it, yeah. Well, let me, let me ask you about that same question. Let's say Dylan was born today, 2021. Yeah. Well, not born. Let's, let's, let's make him 20 years old in 2021. Is his is it like the Beatles? Yeah, he'd have hits, but he wouldn't be Bob Dylan, or would he even have hits? Does anyone care for this anymore? He would. Well, <clears throat> let's back it up and say what if you're going to say Dylan is 20 years old in 2021. Well, if you give me the fact that he's Dylan, he's still prodigiously gifted, mm-hmm. right? Sure. He still reaches out and is out to and is formed by the cultural world around him. It wouldn't sound like, you know, uh, pulling in the wind, whatever he did, yeah. but it would be of this time and it would be his creative response to the world. I think he would have an audience, but it would I be a, so yeah. Yeah, I think it would be a stratified Spotify audience. I think that's, <laughs> I think that's what it would be. Because, because, there's so many outlets these days. Everything is stratified, right? Oh, I yes. It's time for the second break. We need to allow our affiliates time to play their sponsors, but we'll be back in 60 seconds to continue talking with Jim Curtis about his book, Decoding Dylan on Rock School. Do me a favor. I am going to. I'm going to give you one of the, and this really is a a a stock question. And blatantly, you're a monstrous Dylan fan. My guess is you can quote most of his music. So there's a a person who's never heard Bob Dylan has time to hear one song. What do you give him? Okay. I'm going to say, look, Dylan doesn't compromise, and I'm not going to compromise either. Okay. Dylan is not easy. Dylan is hard to love. And if you can't accept that, then you're never going to appreciate Dylan. So my song is, are you ready for this? I'm, I'm... Just like Tom, Just like Tom Thumbs Blues. Okay. Wow. Which has what I think is the greatest single line in the history of American popular music. Which is? When you're lost in the rain in Juarez, and it's Easter time, too. Okay. That's the, that's the opening. Yes. It is. It's a leading, my, it's a leading line. Is, this is Dylan's most difficult song. It's really more difficult than Visions of Hannah or any other better-known works. But it is quintessential Dylan. If you want to understand, you want to know what Dylan is in his core, 
what it is that makes him a genius, just like Tom Thumb's blues is it. Jim Curtis, the name of the book is Decoding Dylan. It is as much an entertainment read as it is an academic read, and you will gain IQ points after completing it. You know what bothered <laughs> Jim, I'm going to tell you what bothered me about the book. I was I was reading it along, and I got to the fact that there's about 30 pages left, and you, you started talking about the idea of the paradox, and I thought, mm-hmm. okay, let's get into this. It's two pages, and then the remainder of the book, maybe 20% of it, is all of the references that you make. And I thought, oh, academic. Oh, academic. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, man. Jim, thanks for talking to us. I really appreciate it. Joe, so thanks so much for your energy and enthusiasm. And believe me, if you ever want to set some chords to songs for passersby, I would be deeply flattered. I'd be flattered out of my mind. It's worth a thought. It really is. I got to do it before okay. school starts, though. Jim, thank okay, you. We'll, we'll be in touch, right? All right. time too And your gravity fails and negativity don't pull you through Don't put on any airs when you're down on Rue Mark Avenue They got some hungry women there and they really make a mess out of you